Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This is Bill and episode number 157 of the God Stuff podcast. This is where we go bigger, better, and deeper, a bigger impact for Christ in the gospel, a better understanding of scripture, how to use, interpret, and apply it, and a deeper walk with God. And today we're going deeper. And the title of this episode is super exciting and super, well, actually it's not. It's the opposite of exciting because it's super nerdy. Today we're going to talk about, ready? The subjective genitive. Yay! I wish I had one of those buttons to do applause. The subjective genitive. Yeah, and I put an exclamation point after it in the title. So that's how exciting it is. That makes everything exciting and awesome. But this is a grammatical term. And it's a grammatical term that actually comes into play in a pretty common Bible verse. And it's something I preached on this past Sunday at Pathway Church. Now, these podcasts drop about a month after I record them. So sermon was part 17. The series was The Christian Incomplete Armor. If you go to our website at pathwaychurch.life, you can find it, okay? So that was a whole series, 17 messages on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And in the last part of that series, part 27, sermon 17, I preached on 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare and all of that. And this subjective genitive comes into play. It will make sense when we go through it. We're going to go through the word today. We're going to get into Greek grammar today. And I want to make a point at how important it is for preachers and Bible teachers to do their work, but also how God still works, you know, even when we're off base a little bit. So, yeah, that's what today's podcast is about. Glad you're here. If you're a person who really likes to go deep in the Word, you'll love this. And you'll also love Veritas School of Biblical Ministry. We're offering a free course in soteriology. If you do slash salvation after veritasschool.life slash salvation, or you can do veritasschool.life slash boot camp if you're new and if you just want to really nail down the basics or maybe you've been saved a long time you've never been grounded in grace and in scripture slash boot camp anyway episode 157 thanks for being here here we go welcome to the god stuff podcast with bill giovanetti the home of grace powered living because grace isn't an app it's an operating system here's bill Okay, so the verse we're looking at is 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, I have a lot of things on my screen. They're all going to make sense in a minute. And we're going to go really deep into the Greek grammatical structure of this verse. And I'm going to show you the verse in Greek. And I'm going to show you a number of translations. I'm going to show you a journal article. I'm going to show you a book on grammar. So if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see all this. If you're driving, don't watch. Don't watch the video. I mean, watch the road, but I'll try to make it clear just verbally as well. So the topic is the subjective genitive. I'm going to explain what that means and why it matters. And also, I think the sub theme, the sub text of this whole podcast is that we preachers really need to do our homework and we really need to work. You know, I'm not holding myself up as the example of it. There are people who work far harder than me, I'm sure. But I do work hard. I do work hard on the uh, biblical data and on the grammar of the text before me. And especially when we're going, kind of going off 
you know, off the standard interpretation of a passage, we really need to help our church understand why. Because I'm not the authority. Scripture is the authority. And, you know, we always need to argue from the words of Scripture while we're making our case. So, without dragging this out too far, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And if you see me looking down, it's because I have a, a tablet screen sitting right in front of me. And this is what I'm sharing with you, but let's go. Okay. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, I just read the New King James Version. And that last phrase bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And really specifically, the phrase, the obedience of Christ. That's what I want to ask about. What does that mean? Because I was preaching this, and it was the wrap-up of the series on spiritual warfare, and I was really intrigued as to what this means, captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay, what is Paul doing? Paul is telling us we're in a battle. The battle is largely in our minds. The battlefield is the mind. The devil is inserting bad thoughts into our minds like he did with Peter, like he did with Judas, like he did with Ananias and Sapphira, like he did with David. And all of that is explicit in Scripture. And the devil takes little things and makes them big things. He takes little lies and by accretion adds other lies and you get a big lie called a stronghold, which is a worldview or a, it can be intellectual, it can be psychological. Strongholds can be emotional damage, psychological damage all of which has been infiltrated by demonic doctrines, doctrines of demons. It's just ideas that are false, that have gotten into you that you believe. So that's a stronghold. And what Paul is telling us here in Second Corinthians is we use spiritual weapons that are mighty in God to pull down those strongholds, to demolish those strongholds, to cast down the arguments. Those are lies of the devil. To cast down every high thing. Those are more lies of the devil that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so we're taking out the bad stuff. We're casting out the strongholds, demolishing the strongholds. And then we're bringing every thought captive. So this is the positive side of the coin to the obedience of Christ. Well, what does it mean to bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? The standard interpretation says that it means to bring our thoughts captive and therefore that way we will obey Christ. And that's pretty universal among commentaries and Bible experts on how they interpret this phrase. But I was studying it and I'm like, you know, there's another way that you can go with this. And I actually think it's the right way. So I preached this on Sunday, and I did a lot of homework on it, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And there it is in Greek, hupakoin to Christu, the tain hupakoin, the obedience of the Christ. So four words, the obedience of the Christ. And you've got two words, and let's go back to English, obedience of Christ, obedience of Christ. When you have obedience is a noun, Christ is a noun. The word in between is of, obedience of Christ, blank of blank. Okay, so generally, not always, but in English, when you have two nouns joined by the word of, you have a grammatical construction called genitive, G-E-N-I-T-I-V-E. And that is the case here. How do we know it's genitive? We know it's genitive by the way, in Greek, Christ is spelled. It's 
unarguable. This is a genitive. Okay. So the obedience of Christ. Now, what does a genitive do? A genitive takes two nouns and says there is a relationship between those two things. There's a relationship between obedience. There's a relationship between obedience and Christ, the love of God, the pencil of Bill, the sermon of Bill, the wife of Bill, the children of Bill, you know, and on and on. So two nouns are in some kind of relationship. Well, the relationship is generally unspecified. So when you have a genitive construction, there are about 20 different relationships. So I'm holding up show and tell. This is a book by Brooks and Winbury called Syntax of New Testament Greek. And by the way, you don't need Greek to understand today's podcast, all right? You don't need to know Greek. There's a whole chapter on the genitive, right? And there's about 20 different ways that genitive is used. And now when you have a genitive construction and you're translating it into English, Somebody's got to make some decisions. You know, is this a genitive of source? Is this a genitive of possession? Is this a genitive of description? Is this an adverbial genitive of time or place? And on and on. There's a whole bunch of genitives and the translator needs to make a decision how to translate it. The easiest way to translate this is just use the word of. And that's what the New King James did. The bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Well, that doesn't help. Now you've got some work to do, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You've got to decide, is that me obeying Christ? Is that Christ obeying something else? What is that? What is the relationship between the word obedience and the word Christ in this context? Okay. Now, almost every Bible translation, they they do one of two things. They either translate it as if this is us obeying Christ, or they just leave it undefined. And I'm going to show you translations on the screen. They leave it undefined as blank of blank. They don't actually get into it. So the New International Version says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So they translate the obedience of Christ as obedience to Christ. That's the New International Version. The King James Version, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, which is the same as the New King James Version, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So they just leave it kind of undetermined, the obedience of Christ. It's very literal. The English Standard Version, and we take and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's just like the NIV. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a new American. The New Living says to make it obey Christ. So there are two ways the translations have gone. The first way is they leave it undetermined as to who's doing the obeying. And that's literal. In Greek, it just says to the obedience of Christ. So the New King James does that. The Old King James does that. The New American Standard Bible does that. A few other translations do that. The obedience of Christ. That's my preference that alerts me now as an English reader that I've got some work to do to figure out what the of means here, right? The other way the translations go is to make a determination that this is a certain kind of genitive construction, the objective genitive. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But if that's what it is, then this means that the purpose of all of this is that we who are taking our thoughts captive, we would obey Christ, right? So the obedience is something we do, is something Christ receives from us. He receives our obedience. In grammatical terms, he would be the object we would obey Christ. He would be the direct object of our obedience. All right. So it's called an objective genitive. So now I'm going to argue, and I did argue in my sermon that that's not what it means. That's a bad translation. They should have just left it the obedience of Christ. That it's not our obedience to Christ that's in view here. It's Christ's obedience to the plan of salvation. 
It's Christ's obedience to the will of the Father. It's Christ's obedience to the eternal counsel. So you have, let me grab my Bible software here. I'm going to just look at a couple of quick uh, Bible passages. So uh, we have in Romans 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Who's the one man? Well, the one man's disobedience, that's Adam. Many were made sinners, that's all of us. So also by one man's obedience, who's that? Jesus Christ. Many will be made righteous, that's all who have believed. What was the one man's disobedience, eating the forbidden fruit? What was the one man's obedience, dying on the cross for our sins? In other words, Paul in Romans 5 uses the phrase, one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, to describe the saving work of Christ, the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. You have the same thing in Hebrews 5.8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And the idea here is that Jesus obeyed through suffering, and the suffering is the suffering of death for our salvation. And on and on. There are many places in Scripture that talk about the obedience of Christ. Christ's obedience, Christ's submission in his hypostatic union, in his human nature, is to the will and plan of God, to the will and plan of the Father, to effect mankind's eternal salvation. Now, Christ is in no way subordinate as God. He is co-equal, co-eternal with Father and the Holy Spirit. So, don't ding me with that one. Christ is eternal God, never stop being God. But in his human nature and in his hypostatic union, he's able to subordinate himself. And even some might argue in his divine nature, not as a matter of essence, but as a matter of getting the job done, to subordinate himself to the will of God. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus obeyed the saving work of Christ, the saving plan of God. Saving work of Christ is obedience to the plan of God right? And because he died on the cross, because he shed his blood, because he effected man's purgation from sin, because he brought about propitiation, the satisfaction of the justice of God, because he paid for our sins in full, because he cried out, it is finished. All of that is summed up in the phrase, the obedience of Christ. It's not what we do, it's what he did. And that is what I'm saying, the correct interpretation of, let's go back to our verse, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Not our obedience to Christ, but Christ's obedience to the Father to do the work to save us. We are to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. All right, that's a different way of taking that word of. That's flipping it over from a subjective to a subjective genitive, from an objective genitive. So let me show you some grammar here. So I took my book, uh, Brooks and Winbury, Syntax of New Testament, Brooks and Winbury, Syntax of New Testament Greek, and let's take genitive with nouns of action, all right? And my book's all marked up because I'm always studying the stuff. A noun of action is a noun, the definition of which contains a verbal idea. Often there will be a cognate verb which has the same root. So obedience is a noun, but it's a noun of action because it comes from the verb obey, all right? So it's a noun of action. This category employs the substantive without a preposition, but not always. So now he says there are two kinds of these Genitive with nouns of action, okay? So here's number one, the subjective genitive. You can see it on the screen. We'll show you the next picture. I just took a bunch of pictures with my phone. Here's number two, the objective genitive, all right? So let's go back to page, the first picture. Subjective genitive. If the word in the genitive, the word in the genitive in our verse is Christ, of Christ. If the word in the genitive produces the action implied by the noun of action, it functions as the subject of the verbal idea contained in the noun of action and is therefore a subjective genitive. To put it another way, if the noun of action, obedience, were replaced by a cognate verb in the active voice, 
obey, the word in the genitive would be put in the nominative case and become the subject of the verb. Christ obeys. Now let's flip it over and before we apply it, look at the objective genitive. If the word in the genitive of Christ receives the action implied by the noun of action, people obeying Christ, it functions as the object of the verbal idea contained in the noun of action and is therefore the, an objective genitive, obeying Christ. So it's either obeying Christ, objective genitive, which is like 90% of the translations go that way and 90% of the commentaries go that way, or it's Christ obeying subjective genitive, which is the minority opinion, honestly, and I think is wrong. But I'm telling you why I think it's wrong. I'm not just, you know, going off on a limb here. I'm going to show you some research on this. And then you've got a bunch of uh, examples in Brooks and Wimber. I'm not going to go through these. But when you have obedience of Christ, that can either be obedience to Christ or Christ's obedience. And I'm saying it's Christ's obedience. And I'm going to say what it means but I'm going to show you another article. So I spent a few hours going through this and actually working to get this article. Um, I'm going to show it to you. This is a, a scholarly journal article. The title is The Obedience of Christ, A Reassessment of the Obedience of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now it's got the phrase in Greek, so I'll read that title again. The Obedience of Christ, A Reassessment of Tain Hupakoen to Christu in 2 Corinthians 10.5. All right. This is by Michael Kibbe, a professor at Wheaton College. So that's near and dear to my heart as I did attend Wheaton for a little while. And this is from a journal called the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters. It's copyright 2011. This article is 2012. And so this is the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters, 2.1, pages 45 through 56, 16 pages. I'm just going to read the beginning and one of the footnotes because I think it'll help make sense to what I'm saying here. Richard Longnecker has suggested that while the concept of Christ's obedience is a cardinal feature in Christian theology, the actual vocabulary of obedience describes Christ's behavior only three times in the New Testament. Philippians 2.8, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Romans 5.18, which I showed you, and Hebrews 5.8, which I showed you. I think that's what I showed you. But anyway, what's he saying? The concept of the obedience of Christ, Christ obeying, huge concept in the Bible. It's a cardinal feature in Christian theology. But according to this one scholar, Richard Longnecker, it's only spe specifically stated three times. Well, let me read on. The goal of this essay by Michael Kibbe, the goal of this essay is to argue that one more text, 2 Corinthians 10.5, should be added to Longnecker's list. To be more precise, this essay will suggest that the phrase, the obedience of Christ, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, refers to Christ's obedience rather than obedience to Christ. Now, I'm going to go down to a footnote. In grammatical terms, I will argue that of Christ should be read as a subjective rather than an objective genitive. I prefer to say Christ's obedience and obedience to Christ. Christ's obedience is the subjective genitive. Obedience to Christ is the objective genitive. However, because this is ultimately a debate about reference and not about grammar, so on and so forth. Okay, let me explain this. Here is a 16-page technical theological journal article making the point I'm making. I'm not out there all alone. And I think if you were to read this, and you, it'd be helpful to know Greek, honestly, but you could work through it if you're a diligent student of Scripture and like working, you could work through it. And he gives four key reasons why 
from the context, from other uh, similar constructions in Greek, from the theology of it, and all of this, why this should be the obedience by Christ to the plan of salvation rather than our obedience to Christ. And it's really interesting. And one of the points that Kibbe makes here is that even though almost all the commentaries take this the other way, and even though almost two-thirds of the translations take this the other way, nobody, hardly nobody makes the case for that. No one even recognizes that there's an issue here. No one even says, yeah, by the way, we have to figure out what kind of genitive this is. No one makes that case. No one deals with that difficult decision and gives a rationale for why they made it the way they made it. They just all kind of echoing each other. And if you're at Veritas or, if, you know, if you've heard me teach for a while, you've probably heard me talk about what I call the commentary echo chamber. And that's what happens. A commentary is a verse by verse explanation of a book of the Bible. And there's thousands of them and tens of thousands of them. And they're great. And, you know, you'll end up getting your favorites, which I have, but they're all saying the same thing, but nobody makes the reason why. No one argues for it. No one says, yeah, this ought to be an objective genitive, which is how they all take it. Because if you read it as an objective genitive, this is the typical way, the way I disagree with. We cast down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring every thought captive. And once we bring every thought captive, now we can obey Christ. We're the subjects. Christ is the object of the obedience. We obey Christ. Object of gender. There's truth to that. I can't argue with that, right? I mean, that does make sense. So that's why I said in the intro, we preachers, and this is not, this is a job for faithful, diligent teachers and preachers of the word of God. We have to really work hard and make the case for our interpretation. And we can't be lazy and we can't just read a few commentaries and say, Oh, well, that's what they say. That's what it is. Dig guys, gals, dig. But even if you get it wrongish, this is still not bad. This is still not bad theology to say we got to wrestle our thoughts into captivity so that we can obey Christ. That's truth. There's nothing false there. However, I don't think that's what this verse is saying. I think it's we have to wrestle our thoughts into captivity, these strongholds, these giant ideations to bring them subject to, I'm going to take out the phrase, the obedience of Christ. And insert the phrase, the finished work of Christ on the cross, because that is the essence of the obedience of Christ. We have to bring our thoughts, our thought life, our emotional life, our inner scripts, our inner running dialogue to align with the truth of the finished work of Christ, to align with what he did when he died on the cross, when he obeyed the plan of salvation and effected it through his sacrificial death on Calvary's cross, when he submitted himself to the will of the Father and said, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. And when he did that, and when he shed his blood for us, and when he sacrificed for us, and we did all those things on the day we call Good Friday, that we have to bring our thoughts into captivity to that. We have to bring our thoughts into captivity under the grace of God, the new covenant of God, the blessing of God through Christ on Calvary's cross. We have to bring our guilt trips to the foot of the cross and ask, what does the obedience of Christ on Calvary's cross, his obedience, have to say to our guilt? What does his obedience have to say to our self-destruction and cutting? What does his obedience and death on Calvary's cross have to say to our thoughts of suicide? Because of what he did, we can be delivered from all these things. Because of what he did, because of his obedience, we can be saved. We can be set free. We can be made whole. We can be delivered. The obedience of Christ is the 
is one of the titles for the saving work of Christ on Calvary's cross. It's one man's disobedience by which many are made sinners is flipped over by one man's obedience through which many are made righteous. We're righteous. Even when you're sinning, you're righteous. Even when you're being an idiot, you're righteous. Even when you're a prodigal and in the far country in the depth of your depravity, if you're saved, you're righteous. Why? Through one man's obedience. And when we deal with strongholds, deeply embedded psychological problems, deeply embedded deceptions and worldviews that are infiltrated into our hearts by Satan, when we deal with these satanic, demonic ideations called strongholds, the way to deal with them is to pick up that set of thinking and that set of feeling and that emotional drive and that emotional struggle and problem. It's to pick all that up and bring it to the foot of an obedient Christ who obeyed to the point of death, even the death of a cross, Philippians 2.8. And let that Savior clean all that up and deliver and break the power and break the chains of all those things. Because we bring every thought into captivity to the gracious, life-giving, saving, delivering, healing, sacrificial obedience of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And if you do that, you're going to have a different kind of life. If you do that, you're going to be whole. If you do that, you're going to be blessed. So the title of this podcast today, and I know it was a lot. I hope it wasn't too heavy. The Subjective Genitive. Yay! Christ is the subject of obedience. He obeyed, and we are blessed because of it. We bring all our thoughts into captivity to that. Okay, I won't belabor the point. I hope that made some sense to you. I hope you see that the Word of God is a rich gold mine. And the more we dig, the dustier we get, but the more treasures we can unearth. And that's really part of the goal. That's why I started Veritas School. Go check it out, veritasschool.life slash salvation or slash bootcamp if you're, if you've never really been grounded. But thanks for listening. I think I'll just wrap it up there. Please subscribe. Please tell other people about it. Share this podcast. I, and by the way, I'm just going to have one more argument. I cannot imagine St. Paul in terms of spiritual warfare telling us that we should look to something we can do, obedience, as part of the solution to spiritual warfare. No, he's always pointing to what Christ has done. Grace, not works, grace. Okay, I'll shut up. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the podcast. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at godstuff.tv.